Um, well, I think it's up to me now. My name is Kyle Hepner. I'm the editor-in-chief of New England Home Magazine. Um, I will warn you, we are starting out with installed microphones up here, uh, but there's a slight chance they may go out at some point, and if they do, we will switch to one of the handheld mics. But if you suddenly can't hear us, holler and let us know so we can, can fix that. Uh, but I am delighted, A, to be a part of the Bad Talks in general, um, when Paul and Linda from Kochman Wright and Haig and John from United Marble came to us with the idea, uh, it was a perfect fit for us because um, you may know New England Home as you know, kind of a purveyor of beautiful high-end residential design and architecture and building to the broader public. Um, and that is, of course, true, but unusually, I think, in the public publishing industry, we see ourselves very much as partners in the industry as well as a conduit to bring all of this beautiful work to the people who can most appreciate it and we hope will buy more of it. Um, and so we were delighted to be involved in this. It's been a great uh, thing for the past four years. Uh, as you can see, we get wonderful turnouts. Uh, tonight is also particularly nice because as part of Design Week, this is a special public version of the Bad Talks, which are normally open only to professionals in the trade. Uh, so we are very happy to welcome all of you who are not part of our normal audience um, and hope that you will enjoy the give and take and uh, idea passing back and forth that tends to happen at these things as much as we do. Um, because it's a public talk, um, we thought, well, we can come up with a subject that pretty much everybody is interested in and has an opinion about. Um, and I think you will agree that we found one of those. Uh, new homes in older settings, how should they work, uh, is especially apt for us because here in New England, of course, we are heirs to well over 300 years of architectural heritage, uh, starting in the 17th century and continuing to go on now. Um, and happily to my right here, we have four people who between them represent, I won't tell you how many years of <laughs> passion and commitment and experience around that topic altogether. Um, I will have all of our panelists give a, a brief uh, kind of self-introduction and just talking a little bit about kind of how they ended up involved in this um, topic and what their work is related to it. But just to kind of let you know who they are briefly, uh, to my right here is Deb Andrews who is the Historic Preservation Program Manager for the City of Portland, Maine, which a job she's been, well, she's been working for the city for more than 25 years now, uh, but was in this. A lifer, yes. Um, and so to her right is Scott Slarsky, who is currently a director at Shepley Bullfinch Architectural Firm here in Boston. Um, and we tried to get people who represented different facets of this topic. Uh, so Deb, obviously, as Historic Preservation Manager, has been deeply involved with the City of Portland for many years on a lot of projects that were dealing with parts of the city that were historical fabric. And what do you put in there? How does it be structured? How can you bring the community on board? Um, Scott is a very talented young architect and not right quite here, but a little bit later in this presentation, you will see kind of the emergence of a house in Boston's South End uh, that Scott is uh, largely responsible for, along with Chris Wortley, his partner here in the front row. 
Um, and so, in a sense, Scott has just been through the process that we're going to be talking about from the architect's point of view and also representing his client. Um, and so that will be another key part of our discussion tonight. Uh, to Scott's right is another architect, David Hassin of Hassin Associates here in Boston. Uh, David, too, has done a great deal of development uh, in Boston, uh, much of it in older neighborhoods where there were issues that uh, we'll be discussing tonight. Um, you've seen some of David's uh, work in this presentation also a little bit, and we'll see it again as it flashes up. And then on the far end, we have Mr. Ted Landsmark, who represents, again, several different facets of this topic. I mean, Ted was for many, many years the president of the Boston Architectural College uh, and one of the primary figures making that institution what it is today. Um, and more recently has been serving as a board member for the Boston Planning and Development Agency, uh, which many of you might know better as what used to be the BRA. Uh, which is what I still always think of it as and can never remember the new name. Um, but, and so Ted obviously has been involved not only from the kind of the creative and building side, but also from the political and regulatory side and uh, permitting side, and so has a, a very synoptic view of this topic. Uh, I have talked way too long, as I always do. Um, so I will actually start off letting our panelists talk a little bit about kind of what brought them into this, um, I keep calling it a topic area, but I, topic area, I guess, or what, what, what kind of is your history with the idea of bringing newer structures and new uh, ways of living or working into a historic community of some sort. And Deb, why don't we start okay. with you? Um, I have worked in the field of historic preservation my entire professional career, and much of that career has been spent in Portland, Maine. I spent eight years as the director of a private nonprofit organization called Greater Portland Landmarks, and during my tenure there worked hard to establish an historic preservation ordinance in Portland. Portland, despite its wealth of um, historic assets, had no um, real platform within city government to recognize or to steward those historic assets. Um, upon passage of that ordinance, I, I also got to know the planners in the, in the city very well and went to work for the city of Portland first as a senior planner and then ultimately um, for the past number of years have been the manager of the city's historic preservation program. So I've been involved in design review for um, many years now and I, um, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about design review and specifically about design review in the context of historic districts, those being bona fide designated historic districts. I think that there's the assumption that um, historic districts are all about preserving the status quo and, and, um, and really wanting to hold tight what we've inherited and not to embrace change or not to embrace um, creative architecture. And I think that's a dangerous assumption. Um, it's also an assumption that a lot of the people uh, who come before an historic preservation board or a design review board come with that expectation. And so what they come with is um, either an antagonistic approach to it 
or a sense uh, that the client wants to get through the process as quickly as possible. And, and so they're going to choose the path of least resistance. They also assume that an, a review board is interested and, and, what, and, and there's also the false expectations that it really, it's inevitable that it will generate pablum architecture. And I, uh, I don't think that's, that's the case. I think uh, what is the case is that, and I think it would surprise you to know that there are a lot of design review boards, and maybe I'm speaking to the choir here, that really do embrace both great um, historic architecture and they also encourage the best in new design. But what um, historic, working in the context of a historic district, and I would hope in the context of an historic neighborhood that doesn't have uh, a regulatory program, that the expectation is not to preserve the status quo, but to really understand, appreciate, and honor context. It requires that you really study the context of your project, be it an infill project or be it an addition to an historic structure. Um, not just appreciate it, but really break it down. What are the salient characteristics of that context? Um, and I would argue that it's only when you understand and honor that context can you begin to either distill it or ultimately erode that context, but you're doing it in a very knowing fashion. Um, I have more to say after, Which we but will get anyway. to, I yeah. suspect. Uh, Scott, if you want to give a brief introduction of your work and your background and kind of how, what led you into sort of the area of putting new structures into older places? It's, 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 not, a, it's, it's not a desire to necessarily uh, construct a modern building in a historic district that would propel me toward this project. I think that what's really important for me, uh, if I want to talk about this project in particular, not necessarily my career, is that, you know, I live in the South End. I'm a Boston resident. I love the city. Um, I know the city really well. Um, and uh, it was the opportunity to uh, build something new in Boston, uh, particularly, I think, in this context, it was um, in, in the South End where there are only two extant uh, wooden structures that exist. Uh, this, was one, this is one of them. So it, and, and actually, the, the zoning requires that building in the South End, you're supposed to build with masonry. So our first, our first uh, sort of issue, Chris and I, in dealing with the uh, South End District Historic Commission was to say, can you please allow us to build a wooden structure because we're adding to a wooden structure. And that was, the that was the beginning of a collaboration with the South End District Historic Commission and the Historic Commission with the BRA to uh, begin a dialogue that was really not um, one um, that was abrasive, but one that was collaborative. And we had 17 meetings with uh, the South End uh, Landmarks District Commission, all after 8 p.m. in the evening, <laughs> oftentimes going until 11.30 p.m., oftentimes with irate neighbors present, uh, uh, really upset, telling us that we were going to destroy the neighborhood, um, but ultimately working very closely with the commission and coming to a place where uh, we would uh, feel a certain sense of arriving at a, a, 
a solution that, that we thought was appropriate and that they thought was appropriate. We didn't compromise our, our architectural ideals in any way. Uh, and, and that's really, it's important because Chris is here because I believe that architecture is ultimately a collaborative field, you know. I mean, no buildings can be built by a single person. It's, it's really, it's, it's a team. And it's the team of, um, you know, the architect, uh, or the, the, the team of designers, the client, the city, the BRA, the neighborhood, we all work together to make this project happen. Great. Marlon David, do you want to talk a little bit about your history in this area? Well, I want to make sure, I, I, first of all, I really enjoyed both of your uh, comments, and I, I want to make sure we have time to talk. So I will say that the one, I, I would never would, imagine, would have imagined that we would have been uh, that as part of my career, I would have been doing so much work in the historic neighborhoods of Boston. It happened almost by accident. Um, I came to Boston. I was working at a large firm. I was living in the South End on Union Park Street, a historic street, which was in the process itself of being preserved, and um, the, the park itself was in the process of being renovated. And so I got very, as a citizen, became very embedded in the history of the South End as that process was unfolding. And, uh, and then started a practice in a city where I knew no one. Um, and uh, where do you look but your own neighborhood? You know, that's where, you know, that's where it, it started. And, and from that point on, um, found uh, that we were really developing and building lots of projects in the various historic neighborhoods of Boston. And to the outsider, I think there's like, as Deb was saying, that, that, that there are all these preconceptions about historic review. Um, I've learned that that you know building in Beacon Hill and building in Back Bay and building in the South End or building in any historic neighborhood is actually very very different, and the complexion of each of these neighborhoods and neighborhood groups are very very different, and the um, the uh, it's not just about as Deb was pointing out really appreciating and understanding the character of the neighborhood that is so dear to the residents or to uh, historians or historic preservationists, but actually also understanding the spirit of that particular neighborhood um, and um, what it may or may not be open to or what ideas are it, it's interested in, in exploring or not. As I said, there's you know, there's the, the South End, which is a neighborhood which is, I, I think, um, in some ways willing to, to actually explore uh, because of its history of, of boom and bust and, and all the communities that came through it and changed it, has a kind of a different and more organic view of itself than um, Beacon Hill, which I love, but is a little bit like a UNESCO World Heritage Site. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, uh, working in, in, you know, uh, downtown Florence or something. Um, so, you know, and, and sort of going into each of these communities and really understanding that is a, a place, a point of departure. And I have to say that after all these years, that history, uh, which was, never my main focus as a, as a student of architecture, has become a source of great inspiration to mm -hmm. me and has, is actually at, the pl at a point where I feel like our projects can almost always be tied back to history, whether that history is um, uh, sociological or physical or uh, whatever. 
And that's why I love working in Boston, because there's, there's, it's so layered and there's so much to be influenced by. Um, so, you know, we can talk about that some more. Well, Ted, kind of uh, what has gone into shaping your thoughts from the sort of social and uh, building policy? So, <clears throat> I, uh, I grew up in uh, a public housing development in East Harlem, and my interest in design emerged from the feeling I had that um, uh, people of limited economic means could live very differently and better uh, than uh, was the kind of uh, uh, acculturation pattern that I had uh, growing up in the projects. And so I always uh, wanted to uh, study design, which I did, um, and uh, then uh, moved to Boston because at the time the South End, and many of us have a, a South End connection, was known as um, having the largest collection of Victorian brownstones um, in the United States. And I thought, well, this is really a cool neighborhood, and it was uh, more affordable than Beacon Hill. Um, we, 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 uh, yeah, we had a bit of a challenge because we kept reading newspaper ads, and, and we didn't know that there was a difference between the South End and Southie, but eventually we, we, uh, we, we did figure that out. Um, and I've been involved with uh, preservation activities through uh, the um, Historic New England and Historic Boston and the Trustees Reservations for Landscape um, for a while. And, and so I, I have a deep commitment to um, historical context. But um, when we lived in the South End, uh, I uh, walked down a lot of the back alleys. And I saw that, in fact, people had done very creative and innovative work to transform the interiors and uh, the rear of uh, many of their homes. And that in so doing, they um, opened the buildings to a different kind of living, a different way of, of interacting, both with uh, their back gardens and uh, with the sky um, and with uh, each other. Um, and it became clear to me that, um, that there was uh, certainly a room for more innovative architecture, even um, in the context of a community that was the largest, um, uh, largest community of, of uh, Victorian brownstones in the country. Um, ultimately, uh, I was uh, Mayor Walsh's first appointment to uh, the then BRA board, and in our early conversations, um, he made it clear both to me and then subsequently to the Chamber of Commerce and to the city that he wanted to see more innovative architecture um, in Boston. And um, as far as I know, I, I may not have been the first person in the half-century history of uh, the BRA with a design background to be appointed to the board, but I was certainly among the first and the first in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. And as among ourselves at the board level, the five of us, um, I would say that there's a clear majority um, in favor of seeing uh, much more radical innovation uh, take place uh, across the city in all of the neighborhoods, not just um, along uh, the, the waterfront and the so-called innovation district. And the question we ask ourselves is, why don't we see more of that? Um, it, it's, it's not 
that we turn down innovative projects. Um, and when the BCDC meets with architects and developers to talk about new projects in the city, I'm not aware of their ever having turned down a project because it was too innovative. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the work doesn't emerge from the marketplace that we're in at this moment. And so then you have to ask yourself, and, and I ask us as a group, is it just about the arduous community process that you have to go through in order to make some things happen? And I don't think that's it. And is it just about uh, the developers who only have a conservative aesthetic mindset uh, and, and therefore they won't accept innovation. And I don't think that's it either because when you see innovation um, and then you meet the developer, it's not because the developer is out doing wild and crazy things in the rest of, of his or her life. Um, and, and is it because we don't have enough architects in town who have been trained to do innovative work? And that's, that's obviously not the challenge is. And I would have to say, and, and, and I throw this out as a matter of discussion, that at least from my perspective, uh, the problem is that uh, we as designers um, have failed uh, to present the case as to what the added value of innovative architecture is. Um, I've been doing a lot of work uh, over the last year between Charleston and here, and both cities are, are very similar in that, you know, there's a strong historical content that draws tourism and brings businesses and all of that sort of stuff. We're not other cities around the country. And folks like to say, well, the reason that those kinds of communities exist because, is because there's been so much pushback um, from committed preservation. But I would submit that the real reason is that as designers in particular, um, we have done a grossly inadequate job of persuading our clients and our public agencies as to why it is more innovative architecture adds value to a community. And the last point I'll make is that, you know, Boston tends to be thought of as a, as a pretty conservative place. And, uh, you know, apart from our politics, I suspect that, that that's a true statement. But the fact of the matter is that in terms of architecture, there have been moments in our history when we've been downright radical. And, and I don't just mean uh, uh, having Trinity Church developed in the way that it, it was. I mean that all of the brutalist architecture that emerged in the 60s and 70s was a radical departure from the building norm that existed everywhere at that point in time and Boston was a leader in that regard. And then suddenly something happened. Well, what was the something that happened that took a city full of radical design thinkers and made us now feel as though we're surrounded by mediocrity and banality? And I think it has a lot to do with the way we make the case for change um, and make the case for the added value that emerges uh, from innovation in design. Well, I have a, I, and I, 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 
can we follow up on that? Or yeah. we, or? I'll just a quick point out. I, um, we want this to be a bit of a conversation. Uh, so if you, at some point, you really want to make a comment or ask a question, we don't need to wait to the end. Just kind of jump up and down and wave your hand. And I think either Linda or Paul will bring a microphone to you. Um, so we can do that. Uh, but yeah, I think that's actually a perfect lead-in. Yeah, I mean, I want to tie that back to the neighborhood discussion a little bit, which is an interesting one. Um, so I'm on the Boston Civic Design Commission, as you know, and I agree with, with your um, assessment that we're, we're loath to turn down uh, uh, progressive proposals. I do think that um, Boston went through uh, what I would call a post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, that came from the demolition of the West End and, and other traumas that happened to the city that were so dramatic and so transformational that they altered the psychology of the city um, into one where it was uh, a, almost a do no more harm uh, kind of uh, scenario. And um, if you think about the South End, which we love so much, um, I think it's important to remember that the entire South End was slated for demolition, um, and it was only because the federal funding didn't come through that the neighborhood was not actually taken down. So, you know, there is a context, a so social context for why the, the, and you know, that generation is passing, but many of the people who fought those battles against the highways and all of that stuff were, uh, remained uh, a, a potent force in the city for, for many years. And I feel a little bit like, one of the reasons why I'm optimistic is because I do think we are seeing better proposals um, in recent years. And I think that that's in fact because um, in a sense there's been enough of a kind of blanket of preservation that has been placed on those parts of the city that people really prize and care about that allows um, uh, uh, people to breathe a little bit and get more comfortable with the next layer of uh, work, particularly in the very damaged seams between neighborhoods um, that were really you know, blown out and, and blighted and where people are, I think, really willing to experiment, like the seaport, but also like the New York streets area in, in, um, uh, in the South End or other places that were between these sort of preservation districts. And also, frankly, that an evolution, and maybe Deb, this is something you can talk about, but an evolution in the thinking about preservation nationally. Because I remember a time when, you know, the, 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 the um, uh, various review bodies really were looking for almost mimicking kind of architecture. And when the National Park Service, as part of the historic tax credits thing and all that said, said, no, we want you to preserve whatever you can in its authentic state, even if it's not perfect, um, but build new uh, honestly. honestly. I think that took a while for it to sort of trickle down into the, 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 uh, the ranks, but I feel like it's, it's happened, certainly in um, 
South End and, and some other neighborhoods. Maybe it's taking a little longer in some other places. But I do feel like there is, there is movement in that direction. So I just kind of wanted to put out there. But well, I, I, I actually, I mean, I completely agree with that. And I, I think bringing up the 60s was, was a big thing. In a way, from the magazine's point of view and kind of from the public's point of view, if I will, I think that kind of leeriness about development very much does come from that. Uh, happily, there's been a huge sea change, I think, in thinking about how urban development is done now. Uh, because back then, sort of urban renewal was basically seen as entirely ripping out the existing fabric and then imposing this new thing. And a little bit of it, I think, was still based on kind of Corbusier's old, you know, Cité, Cité Etoile, which is big buildings with lots of empty plazas and open space around them. And we've kind of learned over time that those don't usually work. And so now, Although in the profession, it's more now about knitting new projects into the existing urban fabric or suburban fabric. I don't know that we've made that case to the broader public that the thinking has changed that much. And so that might be part of Ted's point about kind of bringing people along for the ride to where the current uh, sort of consensus thought is. I mean, Deb, has that been part of your? I think that um, that my experience has been uh, that the review boards I've worked with, and we've been fortunate to have the the review board that I staff. Uh, for example, as seven members, four of them are practicing or are retired architects, um, and and it's more by luck than by design that we've been able to draw people like that because. The, and this gets to the nitty-gritty of uh, a, a community's appointments process. Um, and it, it's um, because our city council appoints, people apply, and they, um, and they interview dozens of people, and they appoint folks. And it's, you know, it's, it's the luck of the draw who we get there. But we try to kind of feed the number of people applying to ensure that we've got a really good balance on the board. Ted, you talked about. Um, educating uh, architects having a responsibility to educate folks as to why we need more progressive architecture or what. I would argue that design professionals need to sit on those boards as well and be part yeah. of the decision-making process because what I find is an effective review board can be an effective um, bridge between um, the developer and the design team who are bringing forward a, a proposal and a neighborhood that is reluctant about it, fearful of change and such. But the board, if they're really doing their work well, they will articulate why it is they find this design, which is pushing a lot of boundaries, appropriate or, or acceptable and, and a welcome addition to the neighborhood. But they can't sit there in judgment and say, you know, we are in the know about what uh, is acceptable or what's good design. We're not going to go to the bother of explain it to everybody here. And because if, if it's entirely on the shoulders of the design team, a neighborhood, for example, is very leery of that. They've got an agenda. They're working for the developer. Surely they're trying to make the biggest buck out of the project and such. But a review board can play a really pivotal role in, um, in expressing why this is a welcome addition to the neighborhood and will advance it. So I think it's incumbent upon design professionals to, to participate on planning boards, on design review boards, on historic preservation boards. Well, Scott, I mean, as an architect who has recently brought 
what we hope is the kind of more forward-looking proposal that Ted was talking about into the city mm -hmm. and seen it through to completion. Kind of what were the issues that you and your client found difficult or daunting about getting that vision realized? Well, I think that one of the things that's not apparent are the early design studies where, you know, the, the addition to this house was completely clad in louvers. Um, and uh, so, and, and it's important to note that I think three members of the board were design professionals, landscape architects and architects. And so we could speak through the language of drawing. You know, we would bring drawings and we would draw together in, in, during the meeting, mm -hmm. you know. Um, they asked for a mock-up of what the louvers would look like. We built one and brought it to City Hall. And they asked us to shift the angle, you know, from 23 degrees to 42 and a quarter degree. I mean, it was like that precise, you know. Um, so it was that collaborative process. But I do have to say, one of the things that was really interesting is that I could feel the commission's distrust of us in the early meetings, that the architect here uh, has a vision, and he's going to push his vision no matter what. And he's not going to listen to us. And I think that they were surprised when the very first meeting we arrived, and uh, uh, they said, we will never approve a project with louvers. <laughs> and I, I said, OK. So, Chris and I went back, I said, Chris, we're going to show a project with no louvers. <coughs> so what we did is we did five iterations. A little bit of louvers, medium louvers, maximum louvers, no louvers. But we showed the no louver one first. And we said, OK, you know, this is what you asked for. And, this is, and they were all like, oh, but we liked it better with the louvers. <laughs> so we could see their shift happen during the process. Do you want to say something, Chris? Mm -hmm. um, and part of that was showing them no louvers, showing louvers. And it started to, again, it was that trust. It was building that trust and having that dialogue. What about the client? Because you had a client mm -hmm. who, who clearly um, uh, was committed to, mm -hmm. to your work and to the design, um, who was willing to go to 17 meetings. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, tell us about that. Oh, that's, I mean, that's, I, yeah, you can't, um, you can't discount uh, in any way the collaborative energy of the client and the client also having a vision. Um, I think that at times I was a little bit overwhelmed with the fact that the client had enough uh, trust in us uh, and no fear, actually. Um, and oh, this is another really amazing thing that the client did. The client also had weekly meetings with the entire neighborhood in his house where he would have food and drink and invite them in to look at the design and comment. So he sort of had a grassroots uh, desire to educate the neighborhood himself, which is that's unusual. And how was that received? Um, they were really happy in the first few meetings, and then when they discovered the house was going to have louvers, they didn't want to come anymore. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, you know, uh, 
what, what, what Rami did, um, Rami Rizkala and Cynthia Marturano are, are the, the clients here, and um, they really, uh, they went up and down the street and talked to their neighbors and told their neighbors why they thought this project was important and how they thought it would transform the neighborhood. Um, so it was a, it, it was a, I should mention, uh, Scott isn't kind of mentioning one of his cannier decisions, which is in fact all of the louvers are removable. And the house is completely, is complete and has a full skin behind all of those louvers. So if some future client... Well, the detailing so of the louvers is actually really interesting because the louvers, they're so heavy um, that they had to be constructed in a, in a, I think it's a 36 inch wide by five foot panel that allows you a single human to lift it. And so it just sort of clicks on and then has a toggle clip down below. And the idea is that you could remove and rearrange the louvers in any way that you wanted so that the facade is sort of like could be constantly transformable. But I don't think that the neighbors know that. <laughs> <laughs> now they do. Yeah. Can I uh, make an observation about that project as well as others, which is that I know, I know the clients. I, I've met your uh, clients. And um, you know they're very sophisticated people who um, also brought um, uh, a different cultural perspective, let's say, um, to uh, their feelings about architecture and so forth. And as I look at the scrolling, you know, projects from around the world thing uh, that's going on the screen, it occurs to me that that there is that too, right? That that our culture, our American culture, doesn't uh, place a lot of uh, emphasis uh, on this kind of discussion, on this kind of design discussion, which for people from Europe and other places is much, much deeper, much more profound. And uh, you know, I'm from Switzerland originally, and I, I think that like when we approach a lot of the projects that we approach, I kind of put like my uh, European hat on and think to myself that, you know, in a lot of European cities that are doing, let's say, residential projects in infill situations, um, the, they're thinking about material, they're thinking about scale, they're thinking about the depth of the facade, not necessarily style, right? Mm. It's not necessarily about style. And we're taught very much to sort of think about style. And um, I think a lot of the problems that, that a lot of the suspicions that have been created in, in communities is that when people come forward to build new infill projects and so forth, um, the, the scale is radically different or um, the, uh, the materiality or, or the, the nature of the project is in really maybe dramatic contrast to you know, what, uh, what the character of the neighborhood is. And uh, in Europe, in some of these examples, you can come up with a pretty dramatic uh, uh, contemporary insertion or, uh, you know, like the houses in Amsterdam, for example. But the scale is very sympathetic. Mm -hmm. The rhythm of the facades may be <clears throat> contemporary, but it, walk, it, it feels comfortable in the rhythm of the street. There's a thoughtfulness about that. And it's not like someone is trying to build an eight-story building on a, a street that's all four-story buildings. So one of the things I would say that you said about Boston, where we don't really have zone, uh, as we know it, I know we're going, to get, we're going to get there, where every project is sort of like a stretch, uh, and someone is trying to get, you know, kind of uh, move beyond uh, what 
may be allowable. In these other places where, where those things are much more predictable, the conversation can be much more focused mm -hmm. around the facade, the infill, the, the, the nature, and much less about why is this so big and why right. is this, you know, why, why is this casting a shadow on my roof deck and blah, 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 blah. So I think that, you know, we have work to do um, in, in, in both as a culture but as a city as well in order so that neighborhoods feel that there's a, a kind of a predictability of like what the boundaries are um, that, that will allow a richer discussion to take place within those boundaries. And actually, I would, uh, just to kind of jump in at this point, I, I think this actually ties in very nicely to something that uh, the four of us had a, a quick conference call on Friday to kind of plan out what we wanted to talk about. And one thing that came up at the time was sort of the difference between New York and Boston. Mm. Uh, in terms of the kinds of architectural projects that New York habitually puts up in its neighborhoods uh, versus what Boston is typically comfortable with. And I think, David, you actually spoke quite passionately on the idea of the kind of the community feeling or the kind of the character of the city and its self, uh, its kind of self, uh, uh, well, not self-regard, but sort of how the city sees itself yeah. was quite different. And a perfect illustration is one of the projects that is in this uh, rotating selection here, which is the thing called FP3 over in Fort Point Channel on uh, Congress Street, uh, which from the street looks like basically a, a chain of 19th century commercial buildings, uh, and in fact mostly is, except for one, uh, which in fact I hadn't looked carefully enough to notice until you pointed it out in the call. Um, and so that's a quite different way of weaving a new development into a neighborhood than Scott's house. So do you want to try to talk a little bit about why you particularly felt that was appropriate for that area? Well, I mean, I do like the element of surprise. You know, I mean, I think that people would be surprised. I never dreamed, because our, our work is primarily contemporary, I would have never dreamed that the bulk of our residential work would have been on Beacon Hill. Right now, we're working on projects throughout Beacon Hill. You walk in the front door, they are completely contemporary houses inside. Um, and that is because there is a new generation of residents that is moving onto the hill, that has lived all over the world, um, that has a completely different perspective, but respects the character and nature of the streets of the hill. But what I was saying about New York and Boston, and this is a, you know, obviously a subject that people can agree or disagree, New York is the commercial capital of the country. It is about churn. It is about change. Um, it, 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 is, it cannot be sentimental about itself. It is about, you know, yeah, we love that building, but it's gone because we need to build a bigger building for this new headquarters, you know, whatever. Um, Boston has a different relationship to itself, and I, for one, kind of like it, uh, which is, it's a little bit more European in that way. It's a little bit more sentimental about itself and its identity, and um, is not, is, is one of those things that's not necessarily impressed by change for the sake of change. You know, there has to be a really good reason. And that's, I guess, I think gets to Ted's issue about like um, the extra burden that's placed on designers in the city, which is give me a really good reason why, um, why this should happen. So you had a really but good David, reason. But David, I'm just curious, how do you feel about how do you feel about the fact that these projects on Beacon Hill have a sort of dual nature, a Janus-like nature from the outside and from the inside? Is there ever a desire on your part or your design, team part, design team's part to suggest 
or reveal that on the exterior? Yes, I mean, when we can, you know. I mean, I think you that- you try? Uh, oh, yes, we try. <laughs> <laughs> we try. Um, you know, we, we were involved in a project that involved the demolition of the first demolition of a building on Beacon Hill in 50 years. It was a building that was failing. Um, it wasn't a particularly good building. Um, it wasn't a good building when it was built. Mm. It wasn't a particularly attractive building when it was built. This is an but amazing passion. Mm -hmm. But the passion, so like the argument was like, you know, this was never a really good building. It's falling down. Um, we're going to build a really good building, um, and it will, you know, it will be a part of the community. That was a tough sell. <laughs> um, and um, so yes, I mean, you know. Because there's a fear of a slippery slope. That's right, precedent. Oh, yeah. precedent yeah. is that yeah. word. It's like we're setting a precedent. Yeah. And uh, you know, so like when you went in and it's like everything has to be masonry and you know, like let's build a wood building. I'm sure there was discussion about precedent. What does that mean? Oh my God, are we gonna be seeing more wood buildings? And you know, what does that mean? So that's, the, that's, the, that's a big problem with But then it also speaks to the board that's making a decision or accepting it of really clarifying why it, it's appropriate here, and it doesn't mean that we're opening the floodgates for more of it necessarily, but you have to really um, articulate it and defend it and set parameters around it um, if you want to be understood. We actually have a question. Seven hundred and twenty units. Hello, and and a uh, nineteen-story tower. Very loud now, um, and a lot of people. We, we all kind of objected to it a little bit because nineteen-story tower was just a hair a hair much. But um, for our for our area of the South End, I mean, it wasn't the New York Street which has more broad boulevards, and this part of Harrison Avenue wasn't like that. But there were all sorts of objections, and they got it down to 11 stories, which was nice, and they made the streetscape look more, more blended in, but I personally am, am more in, into more innovative architecture because there was a long time in the South End where if something new was built, it had to be basically an homage to a brownstone. You know, it's like a six or eight story homage to a brownstone, and it's like, oh my God, can it be so? Can it be any more boring? <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I definitely would like to see some more innovative, uh, innovative uh, architecture. And and we got approval, as as Ted knows, for um, for the uh, for the project um, because they actually did a really good job of providing an innovative design and some open space. So, not exactly a question, but. You know, I would um, add in, in, in the nature of um, and trying to be more precise uh, about what it means to uh, present more compelling arguments. Um, it, it's very rare 
that I've seen um, people who are committed to preservation, for example, or innovation on the other side, um, to make reference to big data um, and the way uh, data can help us um, support an argument we make. So if, for example, a number of neighborhood people rise up and they express a fear that having this uh, radical new building in the neighborhood is either going to severely depress the value of the property they've already invested in or conversely is going to increase values in a way that would make their um, uh, annual taxes or insurance rates go up. Um, I, I've been to thousands of community meetings and I've yet to hear anyone come forward with the statistical argument that shows the contrary of what it is that person may be saying. There's data out there uh, that can point to that and to the same extent uh, people will say uh, this, this innovative building is going to ruin the neighborhood because of the traffic impacts uh, that it's going to have. Well, maybe it will and maybe it won't. Um, and and it, it's fairly rare that people come forward with the hard data that indicates what the real impacts are going to be. And if they do, the expectation is that the city or some other regulatory agency will have explored all of those details and be kind of an honest broker around that stuff. But often as not, at least until recently, uh, the city didn't delve into that data. The universities may have. You know, the transportation planners at MIT or at Northeastern might have looked at that. But, but that data is not always readily available. And so um, if we're going to make the argument for uh, the value of progressive change, uh, we have to make that value-added uh, proposition on the basis of data. Um, because if, in fact, the data we have contradicts what the fears would suggest, then we would need to put that data on the table. And simply saying that we need more innovation because there are lots of young architects coming out of Boston's great schools, and they're really creative, and therefore we ought to just turn them loose on Fields Corner to innovate, um, is not a compelling argument in and of itself. And to simply argue that we need different aesthetics is not a compelling argument in and of itself. Um, there are other kinds of arguments that need to re be presented as to why um, innovation is beneficial to a neighborhood in a way that will then win the support of the people who are opposed to it. I, you know, I think sometimes a lot of these conversations hap happen around almost I don't think there's as much resistance to innovation and innovative design as might, one might think. I think there's a lot of uh, opposition to uh, significant changes in scale. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that the Harrison-Albany project, uh, which we reviewed at BCDC as well, and I was also actually very unhappy about the 19-story tower, for me had a lot to do with the character of Harrison Avenue as a street. It had nothing to do with the architecture of the proposal, per se. It had to do with the scale of the street and the scale of the neighborhood. And, um, you know, we need to be able to educate developers as well that, you know, high density can be achieved at lower heights as well. You know, many European cities are denser than, uh, high, than you know, Vancouver, you know, which is all a forest of high-rises. 
So it's a lot of times this conversation is around scale. And I think that when people walk around the South End or um, Fort Point or whatever, what they love about it is their, uh, their connection to the sky, the sense of scale, and so forth. Now, I love towers as much as the next person, and I think Boston should build more of them. But, um, um, but in the residential neighborhoods, in the historic neighborhoods that we're talking about, um, the, 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 the fear, I think, is really around scale. And so, you know, if we could neutralize that discussion a little bit, I mean, that's what the Europeans uh, and other uh, architects in other countries do so well, is this, the, the, they understand the scale, the, the scale of their city, the scale of their neighborhoods. And, and if Boston is fiercely protective of something, I would like it to be that. Um, rather than any particular style or, you know, way of thinking, so, you know. Well, I'm going to be a little bit provocative here. Um, we've gotten kind of, I think, without in originally intending it, a little bit Boston-centric in the discussion. Um, and I'm not going to fight that at this point because we're getting kind of well into our time period. Uh, but sort of keeping Deb in the mix here, I mean, this is actually, I think, something that applies not only to Boston, but to Portland and to Providence and a number of the other cities in this region. Um, throughout the kind of the 18th and the 19th centuries, uh, we, the architects and the craftspeople and honestly the developers and the real estate people of the time, uh, even through kind of the natural kind of hurly-burly of capitalistic life, if you want to call it that, created streetscapes and neighborhoods and places that today are drawing tourists and visitors from all over the world because they're so pleasant and because they've kind of become exemplars of the various stylistic periods. So kind of looking ahead and getting a little more uh, idealistic, I guess, in this, this session, you know, what are the things that we can do as a group in this room um, to see about making future development and current developments both infill in existing neighborhoods and kind of new areas that are coming up in the city, you know, like parts of Sowai in the South End, you know, or, you know, Kendall Square in Cambridge, or, you know, what's left of the remaining parts of the seaport that aren't already turned into big anonymous towers. Um, what can we do to help make those new neighborhoods and those new places the kinds of places that people 100 years from now will be coming from other continents to hang out in. I'll, I'll throw out uh, one thing which um, has uh, been a uh, point of increasing discussion. There was a very good discussion about it last night around some of the uh, plans that are being put forward uh, concerning the waterfront at this point, particularly the area around the aquarium. Um, there's been a lot of discussion of the value of open space. Um, and uh, we all love open space. But it's also the case that um, a number of open spaces is, have been developed uh, along the waterfront, for example, um, over the last quarter century that are totally dead. Mm. Totally dead. Uh, uh, park spaces, for example, adjacent to uh, the federal courthouse, dead zone. Big chunks of the Greenway. 
big chunks of the Greenway, which were supposed to be enlivened, dead. Um, so simply uh, leaving or creating an open space in and of itself is not sufficient. Um, and the, the mantra that uh, I have found myself using, surprisingly, because uh, I don't have kids, so I don't think about kids that much, but if you design a space as though you wanted uh, families to be active on that space on weekends, and to think of that space as a destination, if you were uh, a, uh, a newly arrived immigrant family living up on Mission Hill, is there a space that could be created somewhere in downtown along the waterfront that would be a destination where you could share Boston's Harbor with your kids? Uh, that doesn't exist at this moment, um, but it could. But it only happens when an essential component of your program is to say, we want to have spaces where kids are going to want to go to play. Uh, you know, kids do play on the Boston common and public garden, and it's not just because there are ducks there. Um, and, and people do take their kids out along the esplanade, and it's not just because there's water there. Um, we, we have to think of spaces that accommodate the needs of um, the kinds of people that most of us as designers aren't. That is to say, most of us are fairly able-bodied, most of us are young, most of us are white, uh, most of us are mobile, uh, and so we have a certain way of thinking about how we use public spaces, but that's not how most of the families in Boston think. And so we need to begin to think of designing for a future that in fact incorporates the kinds of people who now constitute the majority of Boston's residents. And by and large, when you look at the planning that we're doing, we're not doing that. And the moment we start to do that, the spaces will change. You know, there's something that, that two, things come to, two things come to mind, uh, Ted, when you're talking. One is, is that I think about the scale of the South End and the insertion of parks in the South End and the width of streets, et cetera. And I think that one thing that's really important is that developers and design teams need to give equal power to the architect and the landscape architect. Mm -hmm. And they need to allow them to work together to come to a plan that integrates landscape and architecture in a much more sort of sensitive way, like you see in some of our historic neighborhoods. The other thing that I'm thinking about is that innovative ways of using obsolete infrastructure, like the High Line in, in, in Manhattan, you know, an incredibly successful project that actually uses uh, decaying infrastructure, but actually morphs it and transforms it into an economic engine that holds landscape and poses architecture on top of it. You know, it, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. In my mind, you know, when I drive down here on Atlantic Avenue and there's that one sort of vestige of um, the expressway, a sort of this green pillar and, and yeah. nobody really knows what it is. I often ask myself, what if urban planners said, let's keep, uh, oh, totally a oh, yeah. let's keep a thousand feet of the expressway and let's turn it into something special. Yeah, that was These, such a yeah. yeah. And, it, and it cost how many billions of dollars, you know? So, you know, I mean, riffing off of this uh, discussion about urbanism and so forth, so I, I was trained as an urban designer, and I think that, um, you know, at the, uh, I could maybe could be critical on the subject of great architecture and so forth. I really, I think about designing great streets mm. um, rather than great buildings. 
um, and the great buildings should follow, but the streets should be great. And I think that the irony about Boston is that there are so many, I think we have the highest per capita number of architects and urban designers except for San Francisco or something, which is a city that in many ways shares many of our same uh, issues. Um, and, 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 and that is that, that people, that, that architects and designers are attracted to Boston because the, the, the morphology of the city, the streets themselves are so beautiful. It's not necessarily about you know, all of the Pritzker Prize winning you know, buildings that are you know, lining the streets, but it's the streets. And so I, I, that's where I think the seaport, you know, we won't talk about. Um, but, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's the issue of like the, 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 the South End or, you know, like Amsterdam is a very good, I think Amsterdam is such a good, we're talking about projects around the world, it's such a good analogy or, or a city to look at for inspiration for Boston. It has a certain scale, it's a masonry city, it's completely innovative in its architecture. I don't know, this is London, but I mean, it could have been Amsterdam. Um, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, there we go, well, there's Sweden, but um, completely innovative in its, in its approach because it has a really compelling understanding about places for families and kids, uh, for the design of streets, and the architecture just reinforces it. It's not the, it's not the end. Um, and I think we are a city that could follow in that tradition very successfully. Well, and also thinking about it as building fabric, something larger than pieces of architecture. And sometimes an appropriate design solution is deferring to the fabric as being larger than the will to insert um, something um, that imposes itself on you. I think you can have innovation and still be deferential and be successful. It's, sometimes it's a subtle tension that is very exciting, that subtle tension, and, and that doesn't mean that it's, um, that it's um, falling short of what it could be, I think. Well, and I think actually David's FP3 project um, is a perfect example of that uh, because it, it has sort of obviously newer aspects, but it also was very deferential to the streetscape mm -hmm. to the point, as I said, that some of us, without looking, mistook part of that yeah. infill building as the original 19th century stuff. The, but, but, oh, I mean, sorry. You know, in Scott's project, to me, like, I was not as, you know, the two wood houses in the south, and I know right. the other one. Yeah. Um, um, I felt like when your project went up, that the, the, the specialness of that house, the woodness of that house and that place was actually accentuated, you know, and it was, it was like, it was making someplace that was latently special, well, there it is, um, uh, or is that it? Yeah, that's the before, yeah, yeah. That was kind of latently special, actually special, and it completely transformed the, the sense of that kind of forgotten park next door to it, by the way, as well. So that's, I think, where, you know, to Deb's point, where it can be, um, I actually think your project's very subtle in a way, you know, so it's, uh, so it's, 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 um, it's subtly reinforced the character of that part of the neighborhood in a way that I thought was really yeah. successful. Well, to kind of uh, start, start summing moment. up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, you see how much of I remember the neighbor's faces. <laughs> oh my God, what that happened? moment. Yeah. 
But in fact, that was actually the only part of the original structure that was worthy of being saved. Exactly. Um, and in fact, the new parts of the structure that have been added to it, even in the frame part, are actually architecturally much more interesting than what was there before. Uh, so in fact, the original structure has been uplifted by this as well as being saved. Uh, but the, the other thing I, I, I just have to say, maybe this is because of, of where I'm seated, but um, I mean, these are wonderful slides. They are also uh, indicative of the way we as designers uh, present ourselves to the world. I think only two of these have real people in them. <laughs> Right? It's a very quiet street. And <laughs> all of these are very quiet streets. People are uh, messy. Yeah, yeah. Two, two of the people are in one of the South End buildings, and, and uh, uh, there's one, people, one person on a, a building in Europe. Um, I, I, I was reminded of uh, a design crit I did uh, a few years ago at the Bauhaus, where there was a young English architecture student, and she insisted on putting a, oh, oh there's a third one. Um, she, she insisted on putting a pregnant woman in every one of her renderings. And when people asked her why she did that, she said, I want you to think that the ultimate users of these spaces will not just be some guy driving a BMW. I want you to think that there is a person who will be using these spaces who in fact is like a real human being who is a person we don't always think about as the client for our work. And the moment we start to present that in every one of the images that we present, the moment we start to think about that, or the short grandmother who can't reach the cabinets, or the veteran who comes back and, and is in a wheelchair or whatever, the moment we start to think of our creations as as the spaces that will serve those individuals, then the spaces themselves come to be transformed. I mean, the first project I got in architecture school from Charlie Moore was to design a single family home for a blind client. So everything you thought about in terms of aesthetics, in terms of the visual feel of a place, everything was different. And the place suddenly became a place that had to have texture and sound and light and warmth and, and wet areas and dry areas where you could feel things. The moment you began to think about the environment as something other than a two-dimensional rendering of a three-dimensional space where there was not going to be human habitation, the moment you think beyond that, then you can think, oh, we could create a high line. We could create a central park. We could create an esplanade. But you have to think along those lines first. I think that's a really, really good comment. And I, but, I, and I, but I think that we do it to ourselves a little bit, right? Because we're, we fetishize the, the photograph Absolutely. so much in so many ways that I think that, I, I mean, I, I, really, I, I really agree with what you're saying. I think that's really. Well, wow. I think, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up a little bit so that people still have a little bit of time to chat and drink and talk with our panelists individually. But just to kind of sum up a little bit, I'm going to ask each of you sort of what would be your biggest takeaway or piece of advice moving forward for how we think you can, we can best 
kind of improve the hit rate or the process that leads to hits in terms of coming up with really architecturally beautiful and functional buildings in the places in our region where we need to build them uh, that also still kind of fit in with the community context. Uh, so a very broad thing, but kind of whatever strikes your fancy. Um, and why don't we go ahead and start with Ted and work back this way. I, I think it's important to design for uh, the, the feel of a space. Um, in, in a way that makes it attractive. Uh, the the Champs-Élysées when it rains is magic. Uh, you know, the, the Rambla, magic. And it's not just because they're open spaces, uh, certain interiors, I mean, the, the interior of the Christian Science Church, you know, magic. Trinity Church, magic. Um, we can design for a certain kind of feel and that feel, it seems to me, has to be one that is intriguing in a way that captures families and kids and uh, much more diverse users than we generally think of. Um, and, and it's got to be something that makes us proud uh, when we think that uh, we or, or our descendants might be in that space in 40 years. I would say that in terms of like our discussions with clients and community and so forth, people uh, are looking for a connection to us, to the design process, to why we're proposing things the way we're proposing it. And we have an obligation to educate but also to demystify and to be able to use our, uh, to, tell, uh, to tell a story about this house in this place and why, I love this project by the way, um, and, and why um, it should, um, and why they, the, the, as a client or as a community, you can have a connection to this place. And I think that we're often so caught up in, um, maybe because of the way we're taught or the, the, the fetishizing of the image, where we're thinking too much about uh, explaining that aspect of the process rather than thinking about what is it about this building, this house, this place that is going to um, resonate or connect with the person who I am presenting it to. And that is something that I, I, really, I really wish that actually architecture and design schools around the country had a class, like they have professional practice class, you learn about contracts, you learn about all of these things, but you don't learn about communication. How to communicate your ideas effectively to people who are not architects or design professionals. Mm -hmm. And um, that would be my wish. So um, one, of, one, of, one of, the, one of the, the great sort of benefits of being an architect is that you get to work in many different places at the same time. So I, I've, I've made a project in, Bo in Boston, but I've worked in Portland, Oregon. I've worked in, in various places. And I think that one of the most important things, and you have to allow this one thing to permeate your design process, is that wherever you're working, you have to become a member of the community where you're working. You have, to, you, have to know, you have to know the people you're working with, their patterns, the patterns of their life, of the city you're working in, of how they think. And when you internalize the community that you're working within, when you are actually the client as well, then you will have a successful project. 
You said what I want to say. I, I think to really respect and take the time to understand um, all the various perspectives that come into play, rather than just um, uh, communicating what it is uh, effectively what you want to do, but to really internalize what are the perspectives of the neighborhood? Why do they care so much? And to appreciate the fact that they care so much and, and all the various players that come into, into play. I think we, we play out our various roles oftentimes without ever coming away from it having gained real respect for each other's perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I think when that happens as part of a process, um, something really positive grows out of that. It's not winners and losers, but uh, everyone really gaining a, an appreciation for why this will be successful addition to our neighborhood. Well, I hate to bring this to a close, but I do want to leave a little bit of time for individual conversations. Uh, first, I want to say a special thank you again to North Bennett Street School for hosting this. This is a wonderful space to be in and a wonderful group of people to be with. Um, before I thank our panelists one final time, I'd also like to thank all of you for coming. I hope you found it interesting, and more than that, I hope you agree with some of the things you heard and will help kind of take this sense of mission out into your own communities uh, to make the future architecturally uh, a little bit better than the past has been. Uh, not to say that the past is bad, but it can still get better. Um, but especially, I just really want to thank Deb Andrews and Scott Slarsky and David Hassin and Ted Landsmark so much for your time and expertise and all of the wonderful insights we've had tonight. So thank you, everyone. Thank you.